Well, good morning. It's great to see you. Good morning. Are y'all doing all right this morning? You alive, responsive? Uh, glad you're here. Uh, really, really glad you're here. Uh, and I hope you will come back after the second service across the street to our fall kickoff party. Uh, hopefully the weather will cooperate uh, and we'll be able to eat good food and uh, children will be on bounce houses, adults. You might be able to get in the bounce houses if you want, but uh, we're going to have a time of just fellowship and hanging uh, and being together, uh, laughing and getting to know one another and connecting. We're starting a new series this morning uh, that we're going to look at for the next seven weeks. We've titled this series, Supper with Friends, a study of meals with Jesus. We're going to look primarily at Luke's gospel, the times where Jesus ate meals with people. For when Jesus ate meals with people, he declared much about himself, about his gospel, and about his kingdom. And so I'm really excited about this series. What I'm going to do this morning is uh, try to use our text and this sermon to kind of set up our series. And some of the things that I'm going to highlight this morning will be threads that we'll see throughout every passage uh, that we're going to look at in this series. Uh, so I want to tee up our series by looking at Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as I read God's word to us this morning. Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would come and speak to us this morning, that you would enable our minds and our hearts to believe and trust that you are a God of welcome, that you're a God who celebrates over those who know their need and joyfully come to be forgiven, who come to Jesus and trust in all that he's done for us. And so, God, I pray that your spirit would speak into our spirits, that you would remove me, the preacher, so that Christ is the, the only one who is exalted in this place, that we might experience and encounter you, that our lives would truly be transformed because we've met with you and you've spoken to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie Little Miss Sunshine. It's a story of a girl who by default gets through the regional final of the Little Miss Sunshine beauty contest. It stars Greg Kinnear, who uh, many people think is my doppelganger. Uh, do you know if you know what a doppelganger is? It's a famous person that people think you look like. Well, I cannot tell you how many times living uh, since living in Durham that people have walked up and said, has anyone ever told you? And I fill in the sentence that I look like Greg Kinnear. And they're like, yes, you look so much like Greg Kinnear. And uh, one guy actually came up to me at Coco Cinnamon downtown, thought I was the real Greg Kinnear. Uh, he was so excited to meet the Hollywood actor. And then I had to crush his spirits. And I'm like, sorry, my name's Daniel and I'm a pastor. And he's like, dejected. He walked away. Not as fun as meeting the real Greg Kinnear. 
Well, Greg Kinnear plays Richard, a motivational speaker in Little Miss Sunshine. And at the beginning of the movie, he's giving a motivational speech, ironically, to about five people. And he looks out at this empty auditorium with five people in it, and he says, there are two kinds of people in the world. There are winners and there are losers. Go be a winner. Two kinds of people in the world, winners and losers. Now, if we were to put that in the context of our relationships with other people, I think we could say there are two kinds of people in our lives, those who are in and those who are out, those who we've chosen and those whom we've left out, the invited and the uninvited. So we look at Jesus eating meals over the next seven weeks. We're going to see that in eating these meals with other people, the meals have always been and still are today a place of connection and disconnection. A time where people feel on the inside and times where people feel on the outside. Food connects. Food connects family, it connects friends, it connects strangers. But meals and eating with others can also have the dark side of exclusion. It wasn't long ago that signs hung on restaurants, no blacks allowed. We may not hang signs anymore, but meals still have and can be an instrument of social inclusion or social exclusion, our customs, our etiquette, who we invite, all communicate who belongs and who does not belong. And our pastor this morning, Jesus, is at a meal. He's at a feast. He's at a party. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is usually going to a meal, coming from a meal, or at a meal. Jesus feasts a lot. He parties a lot. Jesus was criticized for being a party animal. He was. If you had to complete the sentence, the Son of Man came, fill in the blank. The Son of Man came, what would you say? Maybe you'd say the Son of Man came preaching. The Son of Man came to proclaim works of justice. The Son of Man came healing. But there are actually three ways that the New Testament completes this sentence. The first is in Mark chapter 10, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Second is in Luke 19, that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Both of those statements are about why the Son of Man came. The last way that the New Testament completes this sentence is in Matthew 11 and Luke 7, is that the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And this is the only way that the New Testament states how Jesus came. Jesus came eating and drinking. Jesus came and he feasted. Now, sure, Jesus did a lot of evangelism and discipleship. But the majority of the time, it was around grilled fish, a loaf of bread, and a pitcher of wine. There's three things that I want us to see in our passage. The first is that Jesus wants to change how we view eating. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, meals for the Israelites were, they were boundary markers. They were symbolic of friendship and intimacy and unity. The Israelites had strict dietary laws about being clean and unclean. They were adamant to not eat with anything or anyone that would make them unclean. They believed uncleanliness, sinfulness was contagious. So they didn't want to be contaminated. So they excluded those that might contaminate them. Now today, I doubt any of us think about eating this way, but we all approach, all of us do, 
eating and meals with some purpose. We don't articulate it, but we practice it. All of us eat. All of us would like to eat three meals a day. And if I were to bet, I, if I were to take a snapshot of your eating and your meals, the majority of the time, I'm included, most of us are hurriedly eating. We're merely fueling up so that we can accomplish the next thing on our to-do list. The food for us is merely a source of fuel so that we can move on to the next thing. Working lunches. All right, this, is, this is why uh, the fast food concept exploded in our hurried and busy society. We can fuel up now without having to sit down at a table. We can eat on the go. Even if we are at a nice meal, I think we can uh, be mindfully checking the clock and feeling pressed and hurried. I mean, when we go out on a date, my wife and I, without children, we pay for a babysitter. So that means every hour we're like, that's more money. That's more money. We're filling the clock tick while we're out. One of my favorite meals to eat is hot pot. It's a Chinese meal. Uh, Hot pot's a boiling pot of spicy water placed in the center of a circular table. And all kinds of food placed in the pot, slowly cooked while those around the table talk and drink and laugh and get to know one another. It's a party almost every time you eat it. It's a long meal. It takes time. It builds community. In summer of of 2003, I was living in China. I had taken some college students with me uh, over to study at a university, and some of the officials of the university invited me to a hot pot meal. And the invitation alone let me know I was wanted. The invitation alone let me know that uh, I might be a potential friend with them. We sat around this table for four hours, talking and laughing, My Chinese is mediocre at best. Their English was just a little bit better than my Chinese. I don't talk to them anymore. Lost contact with them. But that meal and their hospitality communicated something to to me, the foreigner and the stranger there, that I was wanted, that I was included. In the Gospels, we see Jesus eating and drinking and proclaiming a kingdom that was different than what Israel expected. Jesus came doing a new thing. Instead of being contaminated by sinfulness, Jesus was bringing his contagious holiness to those with whom he ate. And Jesus invited and included many in a meal that Israel excluded. Jesus teaches us that meals are not merely fuel, nor are they boundary markers to protect ourselves from those unclean. Meals are opportunities for us to be hospitable, and inclusive. And it's sad to me at times when I see those not in the church, those who are not Christians, doing this much better than those of us who are Christians in the church. Eric Erickson is a political conservative American blogger, radio host, who chose not uh, to support Donald Trump in 2016. And as a result, he started receiving death threats on his life. All the while, he had so many blood clots in his lungs that one doctor, upon seeing the scan, thought he was already dead. He wrote an interesting article in the New York Times on September 30th, 2017. Erickson, again reminding you, was fearful of his life. And this is what he wrote in the article. Quote, this is what I want my children to know if I should die before they wake. It's a big statement. Here's what he writes. At the kitchen table is the most important tool they have to reshape their community. 
preparing a home-cooked meal and inviting people over, both those we know and those we want to know, forces us to find common ground. This guy is facing the prospect of his own death, and he wants to tell his children that they should have more dinner parties, that they should treat the table differently. And I think he's on to something. Here's the second thing I want us to see this morning is that Jesus wants to transform our lives. This passage isn't primarily about the meal. It is primarily about what Jesus is doing to this man named Levi. Look at verse 27. Jesus goes out and he sees a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. Levi is a tax collector. He's operating a tax booth, a place where people came to pay their taxes, their dues that would go to the Roman Empire. Now, these booths, they were leased by the Roman government to local agents. And these agents, uh, they had to bid for the booth. And whoever won the bid had to pay the government up front, which meant that the tax collectors who had the lease on the booth had to levy taxes, add additional taxes to recoup their own losses. And the amount that they levied was at the discretion of the tax collector. So this tax collector was part and privy to a system of oppression. They stole from the poor. They collaborated with the Roman forces. They skimmed off the top at the expense of the poor. They were sinful, dishonest, extortioners, ceremonially unclean, disloyal, because they were helping Rome. In ancient documents, they were listed in the same list as adulterers, pimps, and informers. They were the scum in the eyes of the respectable in the society of their day. And this is who Jesus sees. This is who Jesus approaches and engages and calls to him. And as a result, Levi's life is interrupted. And Jesus says, follow me. And Levi leaves everything and follows Jesus. Levi is radically transformed from a social outcast, one who people thought were sinfully rich into a brand new person. In the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 9, we see the same same account as Luke chapter 5. Yet in Matthew's Gospel, Levi is named Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 10, we see Matthew listed as one of the 12 apostles. He's also the author of the Gospel of Matthew. So Levi, this tax collector, scum of the earth, leaves his vocation, leaves everything, immediately follows Jesus and becomes Matthew, the apostle used to build God's kingdom. Now the big thing Jesus is proclaiming about his gospel and his kingdom is that there is no one beyond the reach of God's call. That the grace of God is radical and can change anyone's life. That's true for you. If you're here and you think you could never be forgiven, that your sins are are too much or too bad, God's grace is greater than your sins. Or maybe you're here and you just don't care that much about Christianity and you're kind of here but you're so-so towards Jesus and Christianity. I believe God's radical grace is offered for all of us and can transform all of us. It's true for those that you might look at too, you might know in your own life and you've lost hope for. People you wonder, are they ever going to know Jesus the way I know Jesus? Will they ever become a Christian? Maybe it's your parent, 
Maybe it's a neighbor, a coworker, your spouse, a child, person on the street corner, that person in political office, that person in addiction. This passage strongly is proclaiming that we must never despair of anyone's salvation. Christ came to redeem and save the whole world. Levi immediately follows Jesus, radically transformed, and the first thing Levi does is he throws a party. He throws a party so that everyone can be around Jesus. Hear me. A mark of God's redeeming grace in our lives is a longing for others to know Jesus like we know Jesus. If you've lost a passion for others to know Christ and lost your passion to make Christ known, then you've lost the joy of your own communion with him. If God's grace no longer grips your heart, then you will be indifferent to a world in need of a Savior. Put it another way. Your engagement with the world to know Jesus is a good test of your own current spiritual condition. Once Levi is transformed, he wants others to know Jesus the same way he knows Jesus. Here's my last point. Jesus calls the church into an inviting mission. He throws a party, verse 29. There's a large company of tax collectors and sinners reclining at the table with them. Levi invites those who he used to be with, those who he used to hang out with. The low of the low, the socially ostracized, people that others refer to as the scum. This is who is in Levi's house. This is who Levi welcomes to his table. And the Pharisees, the religious of Jesus' day, saw this. They grumbled. They criticized Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? See, the Pharisees thought this would make Jesus' disciples unclean and impure. The Pharisees were exclusive. They operated by an insider-outsider paradigm. And if you didn't fit in their paradigm, you were not welcome. And Jesus shocks them. Because Jesus is also inclusive and exclusive, but in an entirely different way. He says those who are welcome, those who are included, are those that know their sin. Because those who know their sin know they need a savior. They know they need healing. Verse 30, they need a physician. And those excluded are those who think they have their life together. Those who think that they're clean and undefiled, that they're good because they have no need of saving and healing. They have no need for a savior. They exclude themselves. A young man named William Booth was radically transformed by the grace of God and followed Jesus. And Booth started uh, to just immediately love people that were on the streets. Uh, and Booth, in loving these people on the streets, did what he felt was right to do. He started bringing them to his church that he attended. He writes this about his experience. He says, one day he, he brought a shuffling shabby contingent of men and women who were all nervously under the stony stairs of the mill managers, the shopkeepers, and their well-dressed wives. And to his dismay, the Reverend Dunn, the pastor, saw the young Booth was actually ushering these people, none of whose clothes would have raised five shillings in his own pawn shop, into the very best seats in the church. This was unprecedented 
for the poor if they came into the church, entered by another door, to be segregated on benches without backs or cushions behind a partition which screened off the pulpit. And in this church, there were modern-day Pharisees that were scandalized, outraged that Booth would do this, and they ran Booth right out of the church. But William Booth knew Jesus did not come to call the righteous, but to save sinners. So he kept reaching out to the poor and the socially ostracized, and he eventually founded the Salvation Army. I think this illustration, along with Levi's dinner party in Luke 5, are actually really good pictures of the church today. The church, a place where the good, the bad, and the ugly all gather together. Some are there enjoying fellowship with Jesus. Some are there wanting others to know Jesus like they know Jesus. And there are others that are looking with judgment and critique of those around them. I wonder what your posture is today. It's your posture on Sundays or when we gather in community. Do you lean wholly upon Jesus? Do you know your need and that he alone can heal and transform you? Or does your inner Pharisee come out more often than not? A posture of critique and judgment, deciding who's in and who is out in your own eyes. Jesus calls us to be an inviting and welcoming and embracing people. How are you doing at reaching out and inviting people in? Yes, into our church and and into opportunities our church provides like Sunday morning or city groups or socials, but this morning I want to get very practical and specific with you. How do you use your home and your meals to invite people to be in with you? A friend of mine, Al LaCour, said hospitality is the grace that turns strangers into friends. Hospitality is the grace that turns strangers into friends. You don't have to break the bank when you invite people over. It doesn't have to be fancy. There is a difference between hospitality and entertaining. Entertaining isn't bad, but mainly entertaining is about the reputation of the host, while hospitality is focused on the guest and giving dignity to those in attendance. Second thing, who do you invite into your home and around your table? That says something about who you view as in and out. Don't just invite people who can return the invite, not just people that you think you'll benefit from or people that you really wanna be friends with. Reach out and invite those who might be left out, those who are on the fringes, those who may have no family in the area, We have college students and international students that have many who are gone from their homes. Easy to invite in to our homes and around a table. Another thing I want to encourage you with is to allow Jesus and his gospel of grace to come out over time around your table. Now, I realize there's two extremes. Some of you want to have people into your home and open up your Bible and read about Jesus to everybody that comes into your house. And to you, I'd say, trust Holy Spirit's leading. Don't be pushy. Don't do backdoor evangelism where come over for a meal and you're going to open up the Bible on somebody. Trust Holy Spirit's leading over time. God is at work. Trust that. At the same time, there's some of you that are scared to death to bring Jesus up in conversation. And I would encourage you to allow that to come out over time. And as God's grace grips your heart, you won't be able to but speak of Jesus. 
believe we need a kingdom of God imagination church. We need Holy Spirit creativity to throw good parties, to throw good meals, and to invite people in. I believe we should throw some of the best parties. We cannot expect the world to come into our church. We cannot expect the people of Durham to come flooding in here every Sunday morning. We pray they will. We invite them in hopes that they will, but we must also move out and invite people into our homes, around our tables, like Levi. Toward the end of the movie, Little Miss Sunshine, you've seen it, they're driving to the beauty pageant, and Olive, the little girl, accidentally gets left at the gas station. And the family drives five minutes before they realize Olive is left behind, and you see the scene in the movie where the van, the, the family van stops, and you hear the dad say, nobody gets left behind. No one gets left behind. They turn around and go get Olive. No one left behind. That's the church living on mission in the world. No one left out. No one uninvited. No one abandoned. We reach out and we invite in. Because Jesus comes, he sees us, and he invites us into new life with him. Tom Sign is a Christian futurologist who has charted some of the most imaginative efforts around the English-speaking world to reinvent Christian life and community, to reinvent Christian mission for our new millennium. And he has noted that most of the most, most, of the most imaginative uh, outreaches have been around a meal. He, he noted a congregation in East London who prepared a lavish meal in the most famous decorated hall there in East London, invited this neighborhood that was very multicultural to come and to eat for one pound per person. And it was the first time in that neighborhood that everybody from all different backgrounds gathered together and ate a meal together. He also notes the co-founders of the Open Door Community in Atlanta, Georgia. It's a residential Christian home for 30 men and women who minister to prisoners and the homeless. And the founders made this comment, quote, justice is important. But supper is essential. After all, without supper, without love, without able companionship, justice can become simply a program that we do to other people. John Tyson, a pastor in New York City, said, we can change our city by the people with whom we eat our meals. I agree. We need a creative imagination on how to love our world, how to invite others in and be hospitable. In this light, our, our church has decided to put into our budget the next six months a line item titled Creative Mission Grant. Creative Mission Grant, $10,000 that we've set aside for which anybody can apply through one of the pastors. I'm going to be sending an email about this later this week. To apply, and our hope is to encourage you, to compel you to think creatively about imagining a kingdom and inviting people in to experience the grace and the festivity of Jesus and his kingdom. And there's three things that we want you to really imagine creatively. The first is how to have fun. How to have fun. We should be fun, right? We are boring. I mean, the Christians can have some of the most boring lives. We should be some of the most fun people. And we should invite people into our fun. And a lot of times that will be around food. Second thing is how to have community. I want you to think creatively about how to have and foster community. And again, that will often be around 
a meal. And then the last thing to, to think about is how to be about gospel issues of justice and mercy and invite other people to join you as you pursue justice and mercy. Fun, community, and justice and mercy, gospel causes. We really want you to apply. We want you to apply so much that we have to keep bumping up this line item in our budget so we can give more money away so that you can do the work of the church and be a part of God's mission in this city. We want you to see all the people around you, to see them like Jesus saw Levi and welcome them in because Jesus is changing and he will change Durham for the good of Durham and for his glory. And he will use us as he changes how we view meals, as he transforms our lives, and as we invite people in. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray that you would help us to see Jesus, who invites us and welcomes us and changes and transforms us. And when we encounter you, Jesus, help us, Lord, by your grace, to respond like Levi. Lord, to want others to know Jesus like we know Jesus. Help us to throw good parties, to eat good meals and invite people in to be with us so that the gospel of grace might bleed from us, that it might come out of our mouths, that it it might change the way we live, the, the people with whom we befriend, the people we do life with, the people we table with. Lord, would you change Durham? as you change our lives and that you change the way we eat and feast and party. Lord, I pray your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.